Would you pray with me this morning, church? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the beautiful sunshine and beautiful scenery that you have blessed us with here in the Northwest. As the psalmist declares in our upcoming text this morning, we acknowledge the glory that your entire creation declares of your great and holy name. We thank you for this local body and the witness that it provides to you. We thank you for the time that we were able to spend in the member meeting yesterday. I thank you for my brother Hans and the time that he took to prepare the small teaching on meaningful membership and how to love those that choose to fellowship with a new local body. As we continue to grow in our understanding of you, Lord Jesus, and what it means to have meaningful covenant, may you forgive us for the times when we have been angry or upset with those choosing to leave this local body. May we grow in our understanding of your global kingdom and the importance of all your churches while still holding firm to our covenant with one another to live a life that is ultimately purposed to honor you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the Gaddich family, Lord. As Andy and Ashley have resigned their membership, we thank you for the time that they spent fellowshipping here. May you continue to use Andy and his ministry through Young Life to love kids in your name. May you continue to use Ashley to love people at the hospital through her vocation there. More importantly, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the encouragement that they have already developed relationships at Morningstar and ask that you would continue to use them to further preach your gospel to the Salem area. For those in this body that will continue to have relationship with them, may you continue to use those relationships to grow each person, each person in their sanctification. For those that don't have ongoing relationships, may they rejoice knowing that the Gadget family is still part of the global church and that we will all join together in praising your great and holy name. In the midst of this heat wave, I pray for wisdom, Lord. Give us all wisdom on how to protect ourselves and not overexert our bodies in the heat. May uh, uh, help us to care for our kids and keep them safe as they enjoy various water activities and fun to escape the heat. We also lift up those without homes or homes that lack ventilation to cool them. May we be a people that offer our homes and shelters to those that need a safe place to rest. Through all things, Lord Jesus, show us how to be your tangible hands and feet to those around us. As we observe the world and its interactions with itself and people posing the idea of trying to be united, it feels as though these efforts actually cause more division within people. What they need is you, Lord Jesus. You have offered the only solution to overcome sin and evilness, yet the world refuses to acknowledge you as her king. As we go through your word this morning, may you be with our brother Nick. May you use my brother to proclaim your truth that the world is so desperately in needing. I pray this same prayer for all the uh, gospel-believing churches this morning. We specifically pray for the branch in Corvallis being pastored by Doug Payne and Edgewood Bible Church in Edgewood, Edgewood Washington being pastored by Jeff Coulter. May you use all of these churches, the elders, the deacons, the members, use all of your people of your church to show the world how great and amazing your love for them is. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and uh, take a seat. <clears throat> the world we live in, the world that surrounds us, the world that is outside of us, has a significant impact on who we are. Just one example of this is the idea of perfection. We as a society are continually working to get rid of any imperfections in our life. This is ingrained in us from a young age, right? Perfect test scores, A+, 4.0. Parents who press us to get better at our selected sport or hobby. Plastic surgery, beauty products, 
we are constantly bombarded by this idea of what perfection looks like. We are continually shaped by our surroundings. And the world calls us to be perfect. Don't let people see how you're not. I mean, perfection, after all, is what winners are made of, right? One example of this is Michael Jordan, undeniably the greatest basketball player of all time. And while he wasn't perfect, he just had to be more perfect than his opponent, and it paid off. So even in the competitive professional world, to get a leg up on others, you need to do your job better than they do. You need to be more perfect and make less errors. It is this perfection that wins the job and establishes rapport and brings the customer back for more business. So that's just one example of how the world shapes us as Christians as, and, and as people. There's a multitude of other ways. For we are all shaped by something. Parents shape our children, right? Now, now we might have more grace than the world, but we desire success out of our kids. I mean, who, who wants to see their child in their 20s living in a van down by the river, right? <laughs> we may not want them to be perfect, but we do shape them into an image. We do press them in ways. Our values, we desire to line up with theirs. Their values to line up with ours. Each of us can, can clearly look back, uh, maybe even as you get older, into your family of origin and understand that they shaped you into who you are today. And it takes years of work to understand this, but also to then unlearn the bad habits that carry over. We are products of our environment is maybe another way to state what I am talking about. This morning, we find ourselves in two psalms again. Psalm 19 and 25. These psalms are separated by six chapters. For some psalms, we know when and why they were written. <clears throat> but for both of these psalms today, the author we know is David, but when and why they were written, we do not know. And so, I hope that I can in, uh, bring these two psalms together, and here is the title of the sermon this morning. The people of God's lives are shaped by who God is. The people of God's, the people of God's lives are shaped by who God is. You see, we are all shaped by something, whether in childhood or even now in our lives. The question that I would like you to consider this morning is this. Who or what is it that is shaping your life right now? Who or what is it that is shaping your life right now? Or maybe another way to ask the question is, what have you allowed in your life to instruct you? What have you given permission in your life to instruct you? All right, let's look at Psalm 19, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 6 together. First, we will see that God as the creator. Uh, would you please, if you have a Bible, open up and read with me. We're going to read the first six verses together out loud. So once again, we'll stop at the end of verse 6. 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." So the first six verses here in Psalm 19 are a declaration of the creator God. David points the, the reader or the, the singer, right, as this is a song, right to the, what theologians would call general revelation. General revelation is God revealing himself generally to mankind. The, the word that is used for God here is Elohim the one true creator God, God of gods, Lord of lords. He is the creator, and to him belongs the glory. And it is the the heavens that the psalmist then focuses on here. God has revealed himself to the world through the creation of the heavens. And when, when a person goes outside, whether it's during the day or at night, and they look up, they see the glory of God. It was the sky above that that declared God's creative power and authority, and it all points back to him. General revelation is God declaring his glory through his creative power. It's him declaring his existence through the world. Now, one may not recognize the creator, One may not acknowledge that the creator is there, but it is undeniable. The Bible says this clearly. It is undeniable that God is the creator. Day and night, God's glory is revealed through the heavens above. There are many today who love to dabble in what's called apologetics. uh, That is defending Christianity through reason, logic, and science. Now, I'm not knocking that, but I just want to point out that what the psalmist does here, he doesn't engage in argument. He doesn't present anything other than this is reality. This is true. He makes a declarative statement. God is visible. Whether you acknowledge him or not, whether you can reason him or not, he is real. The days and nights speak and reveal knowledge. Everyone, everywhere, hears the proclamation of God's glory as the days pass by. In verse 5, he describes the sunrise as a bridegroom who, has spent, who has, comes out of the tent in the morning, beaming brightly after having spent the night with the bride. And then, as a strong runner who runs with joy, it reminds me, of the movie Chariots of Fire, where runner Eric Liddell says in the movie that when he runs, he feels the pleasure of God. I think he's crazy, but that's how he felt. (laughs) 
When he runs, he feels the pleasure of God. It's, very, it's the same imagery that is taking place here in Psalm 19. This is the same sentiment that we see here. It, it, the, the son has a job. To do that God-given job, it then glorifies and promotes God. It stays in its lane. And it, it completes the job with joy. It completes the circuit from one end of the heavens to the next, day after day. And it finds contentment in that. And nothing is hidden from the sun. That's what the psalmist says. Nothing can be hidden from it. I know this isn't something we experience too often here in the Pacific Northwest, the sun, or, or being warmed up by it. But there is this yellow thing in the sky that warms the world up. When it's out, nothing is hidden from its heat. I was recently sitting at a table in the shade in the morning, and as the day progressed, I could feel the air around me warm up. Not because I was in the sun, because I could feel the effects of it. The sun doesn't just heat things up, but it also reveals. It reveals, it brings awareness to the world that is brought to life under its warmth. The psalmist lived under this realization. And especially in an agrarian society, the, the sun would have meant life. It would have meant health. It would have meant provision. It would have meant money. And so this, this thing in the sky can't help but point towards the creator. And as we acknowledge the creator, we can't help but acknowledge the wisdom and power of him. Day and night go by, and people are without excuse as to the existence of God, for God has generally revealed himself to all of humanity. Romans chapter 1, 19 through 21 is on the screen. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they did not know God, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now there are several references to, and, and ideas captured from Psalm 19 in Romans. But I love how Paul highlights here in verse 21 that the world's hearts were darkened even though he has clearly been revealed. He's clearly been revealed and yet the world's hearts have been darkened. You see, God's revelation about himself through nature is enough to condemn a person, but it's not enough to save them. Through creation, we can know there is a God but this God is distant. He, he's not here. He's not present. Through creation, we can know there's a deity, but he's impersonal and unrelatable. And yet, we can know there is a creator. What does it look like to have your life shaped by the reality that there is a creator? That God is the creator? And that all creation points to him. I mean, one way it means, it means spending 
time meditating on that, pondering that, recognizing God's creative power and thanking him for it. I think we take it for granted how close we live to the mountains and the ocean, and we can enjoy both. Do we, do we spend time thanking God for his creation? Do we ever look up and thank God for another day, for, for a warm sun that for a few days out of the year we can enjoy here in Salem? Do we find contentment in that? I mean, think about what brings you honor, what brings you glory if you've created something. People think thankfulness, gratefulness for this. Much more with God and his creation is worth acknowledging. We ought to enjoy it. We ought to take care of it. And ultimately, we ought to give praise to him for what he has done. It is what is in the heavens above that we can see the knowledge of God. And it is in the sun that warms the earth to bring food for us to eat, for the sun is life. But all of this knowledge of God is is simply that. It's just knowledge. You see, God, if he is only the creator, then he is an impersonal deity. He has set the world in motion and then expects us to give him praise for it. We wouldn't need to care. He wouldn't need to care about what would happen in our lives or who we were or who we are. But no, that isn't the God of of the Bible. No, our lives should be shaped not just by God as the creator, but God as a personal, relatable being. And we see this in verses 7 through 14 of chapter 19. So if you would once again read along with me, we will read 7 through the end of the chapter out loud. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So the psalmist switches from pondering God's creation and what specifically is above, to now pondering God's law. That is one of the main switches that takes place here in these verses. David tells the reader that God just isn't this distant deity, right? He isn't a God who created and then demands glory from his creation while leaving us to fend for ourselves. No, he is a personal God who has broken into the lives of his people and can be known. 
There's a switch also then that happens again in these verses where, that we lose because we don't have the Hebrew Bible. In verse 6, it was God as Elohim, the chief deity, God of gods, Lord of lords, the powerful creator. But here in verse 7, we have a switch. The name of God that's used is, and you'll see it in your English, is Lord, Yahweh the personal, covenantal name of God. The eternal God who was and is and will be. It it underscores not only the supremacy of God, but also his relatability. When, When God gave man his name, he introduced himself to them and told them about who he was. It told them about his nature. This is what you can know about me. I'm eternal. So David highlights that very clearly. God broke into this world of man by giving, him, giving us his name. Another way that David highlights God's personal nature is through what we call special revelation. So in the first six verses, David looked at general revelation, what God generally reveals about himself to the world. But here in these verses, in the final 7 through 14, we see special revelation. He takes a look at this special communication of who God is to his people. God's preeminent holiness is so far above us that without him condescending to us, we would not know him. In the Old Testament, God's word for David was the first five books of what we have in our Bibles. It's all part of God's law. And it is God's word, it is in God's word and knowing God that David takes joy and it instructs and shapes David's life. So in the, next, in, in the next five verses, he makes seven statements about knowing God. Look at what he says about God and his law, that his law is perfect in verse seven. That it, it, it's sure, that his precepts are right in verse eight, that his commandment is pure. He says the fear of the Lord, honoring God, giving God reverence for who he is as the powerful creator, judge. The fear of the Lord is clean for his rules are true and they also warn us. God's self-revelation isn't in his word, isn't a deity just telling us about himself. No, so that we can worship him. It's so much more than that is a personal, relational God graciously communicating with man how we can have peace with him. How we can approach him. God, as creator, tells us that there is something greater than us. And in God's word, David finds the path to righteousness, the path to God. Notice that these statements about the law of God and God himself aren't condemning, but they are filled with blessing. They're filled with goodness. God's speech to his people is filled with encouragement, not condemnation. The the word of God brings life to the soul. It gives wisdom. It fills our hearts with joy and it brings life to the eyes. In fact, they are righteous and desirable. They are sweeter than honey. And in obeying them, there is great reward. 
as I read this list, I can't help but wonder who wouldn't want these promises, who wouldn't want what is attached to the blessing of knowing God. To, to have a soul revived, to gain wisdom, to be happy in heart, to possess great reward that the creator of the heavens has given. The psalmist tells us that we can know God and he has made himself known to us. The, the word of God is the primary source of instruction in the life of God's people. It was for David, and it is for us. It shapes us. It fashions us. It forms us. And through it, we are shaped by a personal and holy God who instructs us in the way of righteousness. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice that it says, it doesn't say, some scripture or only the Psalms or just God's law. No, all scripture. All scripture is God is breathed out by God and is profitable for working God's plan for righteousness out in your life for equipping you for what God has prepared for you. God is doing something in you through his word. Paul takes joy in God's word. It's, it's profitable for training so that the person of God can be equipped to serve God. And when we, we come to recognize God through the creation and ultimately in a personal way through his word, we are getting then to know ourselves. For we cannot truly know who we are. We cannot know who we really are unless we see ourselves in light of who God is because he tells us who we are. Through God's word, the psalmist experiences the correction of God. And starting in verses 11 through 14, it is God's law that convicts him and is the basis also then for fighting temptation, for fighting sin. And, it, and the prayer of David is that God would use the word, that God would use his word to root out the hidden sins of his heart and to guard him from, as he calls, willful disobedience. That, that sin <clears throat> would not rule over him, that it would ha not have dominion over him. Now, hidden sin is the worst sort of sin. See, when I'm in seasons of life and God is revealing the hidden sins that I have to me, it is rough, right? With sin that's evident, with sin that I know about and that others know about, I can keep it in front of me. It feels a little bit more manageable. Others are happy to help me with that. But hidden sin, man, no one can really point that out. And I might not even actually know it's there. It just sits in the shadows and causes destruction. God will not let his people sit there and live there. So I would encourage you, if you're, if you're feeling brave, ask the Lord to reveal the hidden sins of your heart. He'll do this and he'll root it out. For sin will rule your life. 
The psalmist can see that, right? There are presumptuous sins, hidden faults, and just straight-up errors of his own heart that he is dealing with. But it is in God's word that the people of God, that the psalmist himself, finds the faithfulness of God to reveal the depth of who he really is. For we cannot know who we are unless we see ourselves in light of who God is and who he tells us we are. We can see then how far we do not measure up and use God's word to protect ourselves from the sin that rules in us. We are very similar to the author here. We often do what we don't want to do and find ourselves in sin. Or even more shameful yet, we know what is wrong and we just break through all of the barriers. David ends this psalm in verse 14 with a short prayer, a short meditation, that the words of his mouth and the meditation of his heart, so what he says and what he dwells on, would be acceptable to God. Because of the majesty of God, because of the creative power of God, and then the conviction of sin in his life that I don't measure up, his only hope was that God would save him. His only hope was that he would be one of God's. See, this psalm has the highs of David's praise of God and and the hope that David has in God to save him from the lows of his sin. For David, David was just a man. He was just a man like you and I. He lived an imperfect life, a life that was filled with hidden sins and egregious, awful, outright sin, sin that he didn't know about and sin that the whole entire country knew about. And he knew the only way to relate to this personal creator God was to run to him to find forgiveness. There would be one who would come 2,000 years after David, a son of David, an heir to the throne, who didn't have to stand in awe of the creator, but was the creator, who, was not, only used, who not only used God's word to protect himself from sin, but was the word made flesh. Jesus Christ would condescend as the word to live a perfect life, die and rise again. It is in him and him alone that we can relate to God. He gives us direct access. For he is the perfect God-man. It is he that keeps us from sin. See, we don't flee sin through any effort of our own. If I can just buckle down and be stronger and have more willpower, I can be free from sin. No, we flee sin by clinging to Jesus. Scripture alone cannot keep us from sin. Our effort in reading and being diligent cannot keep us from sin. Pondering the majesty of God alone cannot keep us from sin. Hear me, there are good things to do and we ought to do them and they will aid us. But we cannot, it is not them alone that keeps us from sin. No, we are saved from our sin by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is he who shapes our hearts as the new people of God. It is he who gives us the power to fight and the desire to fight sin in our life. It is he who saves us. Maybe you're here today and you have not come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
Maybe you sat in the same seat that you're in now, weeks on end, but never truly turned from your sin towards Jesus Christ. Having a life shaped by a personal relationship with God looks like not trusting in your own work, not trusting in your own religiosity, not in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It means resting in what Christ has done and growing in a personal relationship with him. That's it. That's what being a Christian means. So if you'd like to know more about what having your life shaped by a relationship with the creator of the universe, I would encourage you to come talk to one of the elders after the service today. To, to, to find, they, we will all be up here, so you will know who we are. Um, and I would encourage you to come discuss that dialogue with us about that. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, maybe find somebody that is familiar to you and you would like to, and that would be happy to talk with you about that. For the Christian, Jesus Christ is our personal access to the Father. Because of who God is, we cannot ascend to him. For he sits, on the, in, he sits in the heavens and rules over the world. But God saved us, and now we have access to him. Because of what he has done, the people of God's lives are changed. They are shaped forever. We have been saved. And this is what we find in Psalm 25, the third and final point this morning. Psalm 25. So if you uh, are able, please turn over to Psalm chapter 25 with me. Or if you have a phone, click over to it. Psalm 25 is a chapter... Uh, of a prayer for salvation. Once again, we don't know why it was written, but we do know that David is the author. It was read earlier to us, but listen, listen, follow along as I read. Specifically, listen to how David calls on God for salvation. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways. O oh Lord, teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. 
His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Rather than break this psalm into pieces, I'd like to highlight how David is shaped, how David's life is shaped by the salvation that God gives to his people. The verses of this psalm, each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Once again, we lose that in our English translations. But it's a a form of poetry that a a Hebrew reader would have picked up on. All but two letters of the Hebrew alphabet are represented in this psalm. We don't get to see this in our English versions, but it would have been very uh, full of imagery and draw the reader uh, in Hebrew in. And through this psalm, David has placed himself in the hands of God. We can see that he's dealing with shame, he's dealing with guilt, and fears of living in a broken world. He is surrounded by enemies and foes, he's dealing with his own personal sins, and knows that his hope, his only hope, is in the God who saves. It is God's salvation that shapes his life. As a king and a man, He was constantly dealing with enemies, dealing with his own sin, right? We're all aware of the famous stories of David, his moral failings, his familial failings. This brought guilt. This brought shame into his life. He was a product of the effects of sin and was a great sinner himself. He also dealt with the sins of his youth, and he knew that he had transgressed the law of God. He knew deep down that it was God, though, who would save him. Our sin has the tendency to grip us, to hold on to us. If we allow it to, our sin will bring us down. In fact, in verse 7, David asked God to not remember the sins of his youth. Now, I don't have this wild testimony, right? I have a pretty tame testimony compared to others. And yet, I'm not old yet, but as I get older, I'm constantly reminded and can grow and seen and looking back how evil my heart was and actually is. I can easily look back into my youth and beg God not to hold me accountable or hold those sins against me. David looks into his past and sees the sin that is ever-present and asks God, begs God, to take it from him, to save him from it, and to not remember it, to forget it. 
How, how great would that be? To that have, be beyond a shadow of a doubt to know that your sin could be forgotten and forgiven. To, that it wouldn't have to weigh you down any longer. That it wouldn't be this bag that you have to carry through life. To be saved, one must first recognize that they are needy, that they need salvation. Right? If we don't need to be saved, why would we need a Savior? We're good. We've got it. Why would I even allow my life to be shaped by a Savior if I am already fine? So guilt and shame play a natural role in our need and recognition of salvation, but they shouldn't hold us back as Christians. God saves his, his people. They, they, they don't save themselves, and he saves his people who see that they need it. God saves people who see their need. He saves broken, messy people who recognize the sin that they're carrying along and who have no hope in this life. Look with me at Titus 3, 3-7. These are easily some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. For we ourselves, this is Paul talking to Titus, a pastor, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice how Paul describes us without Christ. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, a slave to sin, passing our days in anger and envy, hating other people, and them hating us. How pleasant is that? Then the goodness of God breaks through, and salvation shapes us. Our Savior shapes our life. Then this is the trajectory of the people of God. This is their hope. It is salvation. And as we have seen throughout the Psalms, the author constantly has appealed to God's steadfast or covenantal love. The psalmist's life was shaped by the faithful creator and character of God. He would save his people because he had promised to, and his promises never fail. Because God saves, our lives should be shaped and are shaped by that salvation. When we hear of salvation and we trust in God, there are, there are common misconceptions about the salvation that God has promised to us, right? Salvation, we can believe, comes in many forms, right? I'm going to be saved from my circumstances, right? God's going to save me out of this life, this crummy life that I have. He's going to save me from the trouble. Maybe he's even going to save me from my family of origin, 
or save me from a bad relationship. What can happen is that when that situation doesn't change, when God doesn't actually fix that, we can be disenchanted with who God is. We can maybe feel like he failed us and and he let us down. Maybe he isn't the God who he says he is. This wasn't David's fear. Throughout the psalm, we see him taking confidence in God's covenantal love in saving him, taking confidence in the character of God, taking confidence that God would save him eventually. For us as New Testament believers, we're in the same boat. While we may not have enemies that surround us and foes knocking at our door, we deal with sin and death daily. Our greatest need is that we are saved from our sins, not from a miserable, crummy life that we live. That the the, the shape of our life then isn't just peace and happiness in this world, it's peace and happiness that God is pleased with us in Christ. That we are righteous in his sight and that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is ours. And it is then that the shape of his life is ours. We become more and more like Christ. His reward is our reward. I mean, we just got done with the book of Colossians. And this is, once again, chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The shape of the life of a Christian is seeking the things that are above. It is not here on earth that our salvation will be fully realized. This world will be full of trouble, be full of trial and hardships. But it is in heaven that the full reality of what God has accomplished will be realized. Like David, we too are called to be look beyond this world for salvation. And how hard is that? Day after day. And so much of our identity is built in what we have here. So much of who we are, we find here. We hope that something in this world will save us. We're constantly needing to be reminded that it won't. Our lives, like David's, are very troubled. We're lonely, we're afflicted, we're distressed, we recognize our sin, we have guilt. Yet through all of this, hope was in God. David's hope was in God. And it caused him to turn to God and he expected God to act. So what does it look like for you then to have a life that is shaped with God as your savior? It looks like pondering the nature of God and relying on him and his word and hoping in salvation that has come through Jesus and will come ultimately and finally on that day. Let's pray. Father God, we come humbled before you, humbly before you, Lord, recognizing you as creator and savior. Lord, we pray that that would be something that never leaves us, never leaves the front of our minds. May we continually cry out to you for mercy 
and forgiveness as we deal with this world. And may our lives more and more be shaped to resemble you and be shaped by your word. Amen.